uh, what's the situation in DC when you are running a business? How how do you find it there? The entrepreneurship environment in DC is really interesting. It's very heavy on fintech, very heavy on real estate, and there's an emergent and small group of food entrepreneurs and health and wellness entrepreneurs. What I think is interesting is because we are at the nexus of a lot of scientific universities, obviously like government and then international focus. I think that no matter what business you're running, that kind of penetrates. So it's a small entrepreneur environment, but it's growing up fast. And that's really exciting. Um, and there's been an increase in consumer products that I think is really exciting. And I love being kind of a leader in the food space, in the consumer space and in technology. So a good group of investors, small but mighty, definitely not the panache of Silicon Valley, but that means you know everybody and that means everybody stays close. Mm. Was it was it a strategic business decision to be in DC or it just happened to be that way? It was a strategic business decision. It was not made by me. So I'm not the founder of Territory. The company was founded in 2011 um, by a founder who lived in Northern Virginia. But it's amazing because we are a health and wellness company. We specialize in fresh prepared meals. And so much of the paleo CrossFit movement in the 2011, 2014, 15 timeframe was really born in the Washington, D.C. area and very heavy in the Mid-Atlantic. So it was very strategic to be located here. And it's been um, sort of the heart of this. And it's, we've actually grown you know, up to New York versus taking from New York. When we expanded out to the West Coast in 2015, that was a really strategic move. We actually have um, a big team on the West Coast in Los Angeles. We have a large team in D.C. and then small teams in New York, San Francisco, Dallas, Austin. Um, so we're, we're distributed. But it's amazing to me to be able to see kind of like East Coast health and wellness, the way that people interact with information, with food versus West Coast. Because they're, they're almost different ideals and they're different ways of interacting with wellness products, which is just so interesting. Mm. Be before we jump into territory, can we go a bit back? Um, how did you start your, your own career? And uh, what, was, what made the transition to territory? Yeah, absolutely. I started my career in um, consulting and I did technology integration consulting for Deloitte uh, Consulting, which is like an amazing place to start your career. It's an amazing place to start as a female technologist as well, because it's an incredibly equitable environment with tons of mentorship. And I think as a you know, 22, 25 to 27 year old, I did not understand the value of that. Um, but it definitely was a launch pad for me to pursue a career in technology, even though I come from a non-technical background. I have a, um, a degree in international studies and East Asian studies from Johns Hopkins University. So very soft sciences. Um, After about six years with Deloitte, I had really built up this expertise in product management, which at that time was much more called like functional reporting lead, functional technology, and had really started to build a hypothesis on complexity. And I basically said, if you are a Fortune 500 company, why are you paying Deloitte $20 million to customize Oracle? Like, why are you actually doing that thing? And it's because all these organizations really believed that they had something specialized in their finance, in their supply chain that was worth that investment. And so for me, I sort of said, if that investment doesn't pay off directly to your consumer, you shouldn't be making it. If the customer doesn't understand why the product is so complex on the back end and that needs custom technology, then you are not driving value from that, that customization. Um, So I kind of took that hypothesis with me to my next point. I went to um, Gap Inc. I had moved from the East Coast to the West Coast. I was living in San Francisco. Gap Inc., such an incredible business, such an incredible space in retail in the 2015 timeframe because everything was just changing so dramatically. E-commerce was really just popping and buy online pickup on store was the first time people were thinking about dynamic inventory. And I just loved it from a supply chain operations perspective. I came in to run the 44 international markets that are not wholly owned by Gap. So they're joint ventures, franchises, and licenses. They are in the highly complex parts of the world. Um, so Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore, UAE, Saudi, Croatia, Greece, Ukraine, just kills me, um, and all these interesting markets. And I had this opportunity to work with all these best-in-class franchisees who really knew their customer. And they were capturing so much data on their customer and why the Saudi woman is buying jeans. Right. Like it's just an interesting customer mindset to say, like, who are these customers? Why do they buy? And for me, as somebody who had, you know, right before I left, was getting very big into like BIDW at Deloitte, I started to say, like, what is Gap going to do with this information? And the answer was nothing because they were like, we focus on North America and, you know, this is our, our innovation cycle. And I basically said, you have 
all these different markets that are feeding you information. Like we need to do something with this information. We need to build product design cycles around this. And so I, I started to rebuild the supply chain, um, like actually rebuild it, hand cutting purchase orders for thousands of pairs of pants, like from Excel at two o'clock in the morning and sending them right over to, to producers to make the supply chain tighter so you could have more of a direct-to-consumer relationship with the customer and build in this international POV into the assortment. And it was amazing to me because for that organization, it's incredibly values-driven. It's an amazing company, but e-commerce and the direct-to-consumer world caught them off guard. Like they had no idea that everything was going to change about the consumer landscape and they weren't made for it from a supply chain perspective. So I was there for about three years. I moved from San Francisco to London and was doing business development, launched Gap India, which was an incredible experience. Just setting up a setting up a business in India is, is challenging and rich and amazing. Um, and we launched like Old Navy UAE, which is like an incredible brand in an incredible place. And was landed in London um, and lost my visa because of Brexit and basically said I had an entirely international team. I was from the US. Everyone else had been there for a very long time from Germany, from Spain. And their whole lives got disrupted. So I said, I'm going to take myself out of the equation. I'm going to leave. I'm going to go back to the U.S. And landed in New York and sort of said, okay, what's next? I was almost immediately headhunted by a company called ZX Ventures. ZX Ventures is a venture capital and innovation org of AB InBev. And they had a hypothesis that even though beer as a category was declining because of lack of premiumization against, beer, uh, against wine and spirits, lack of health and wellness trends against a macro level change in consumption, and lack of um, female-focused marketing, because beer is still very, very male-focused, even though women are making the majority of purchase decisions. They said, even if beer is declining, we believe that there's brand equity in the 350 brands that we own around the world. And how do we build revenue models out of that brand equity that reinforce the understanding of the brand and make people drink more beer without selling them beer? So like a super complex hypothesis. And I just loved it. Because I was like, well, this is like, it's either something or it's nothing. <laughs> and and I really wanted to just try. I'd never been like an entrepreneur. I'd always been kind of at larger companies. And so I started day one with a laptop and a creative director. And we traveled around the world and built businesses around beer brands. So the first year we launched um, five different brands, uh, excuse me, five different websites, all D2C, like huge amount of success, over $10 million in that first year. I'm not going to give you the exact revenue numbers. Second year started inking bigger deals with like Walmart B2B and bigger categories. So they're across 14 different categories, glassware, apparel, housewares, events, food, just everything. 3,000 SKUs sold through nine direct-to-consumer websites and a smattering of B2B relationships. And I was managing all the analytics myself with one data analyst who was like giving me like maybe an hour of time and like hand jamming everything on Excel sheets to do like, like sell through analytics and try to learn more about the customer. And what was just so amazing to me was to watch this business that had this brand and had this brand equity and just be able to drive revenue really fast out of it and say like, okay, like if you believe in this brand, here's the 15 other products that you want to buy for them. And how do I make it plug and play? And how do I do this at scale? So the second year of the business was highly successful. We we're, you know, the growth was amazing, like 400% growth, like incredible. And I had a moment where I was like on the road 75% of the time, I'm happily married and was not home very much. And my health had completely fallen apart. And for me, I've always been a health focused person. Um, I lost my father to a stage four glioblastoma when I was 21 years old, which is brain cancer. And it changed the way I thought about my own health very, very much because I started to say, how can I prevent cancer in my own body? Every doctor I went to said, you can't. They're like, oh, we don't know what causes it. We don't know. And it's probably in your genetics. And for me, as somebody who loves data, loves information, loves testing, I was like, I don't believe that. Like, I believe there's a way to learn about my own body and make preventative changes. So I started experimenting in like what we now call like biohacking, but like functional wellness really early. So doing a lot of elimination diets, I found Mark Hyman. I thought I was really inspired by a lot of the conversation about inflammation in the brain. And so for my, you know, my early twenties, I was always doing this on the side and kind of saying like, how can I change the way I eat to change the way I feel? And so when I was leaving AB InBev, um, or I knew I was going to leave, I really wanted to work in the health and wellness space. And I had had such profound difference in my own feelings of health, my mental health, my physical health, my energy levels, everything like that. And, you know, knock on wood, I haven't gotten cancer yet. It's incredible. 
um, that I wanted to share with the world. And I found territory. They were kind of looking for someone to help them figure out direct to consumer scaling. I found them on LinkedIn. So I'm not a board placement or anything like that. And I was like, this is such an interesting business and such an interesting business model. And we have the potential to impact people's health at scale using delicious, healthy food and the data that surrounds it. Um, so once I met the founder and I saw the business model, it was like a marriage made in heaven. If, if we touch a bit on the, the health aspect you mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. what, uh, what kind of nutrition have you went through? Uh, I mean, there are just so many diets out there from keto to paleo to it's like it's just so many what have you done and it seems like everybody needs to be doing everybody experiments myself mm -hmm. I, i've been experimenting for like five years because before i figured it out and i think there is just so much misinformation in this space yeah uh, which is a segue uh, on what territory is doing today but what what have you tried personally uh, at the beginning and w where did this bring you uh today when it comes to nutrition Yeah. So health is personal. Like I, we have to know that. And when we talk about personalized nutrition, we talk about personalized health, it sounds like a buzzword, but everyone's body is its own system that operates differently. And diets are just a template of like standard accepted practices to get a result. Right. And if you think about like diet culture pre 2011, it's very much about like weight loss and low fat restriction. It's like, this is a template of how you're going to lose weight. And from a consumer perspective, that's what everyone's thinking about. In 2011, There's a big move into naturalistic eating. It's really led by Mark Sisson, who is Mark's Daily Apple. He's like the founder of the paleo movement here in the US. And I definitely was very tuned into it early because it was less about restriction and about eat low fat things, 100 calorie packs of food. And it was much more feed your body whole things that are natural things that haven't been adjusted, that haven't been highly processed, get your system clean And you can eat with abundance and have a good life. And for me, in the U.S. especially, that's like a pivotal change in mindset from restriction to bounty that I think is so much easier for – it was definitely easier for me. And I think it's easier for people to accept, but harder because they expect magic, and that's not really how health and wellness works. Like you really have to figure out what works for you. Um, so I started early in paleo. I gave up uh, gluten, sugar, and dairy. Um, and a lot of other inflammatories, nightshades and things like that um, in my early 20s to figure out why I was always so sick. When I was you know, 24 years old, I was walking around with a stomach that I looked pregnant all the time. And mm. it was because I was, you know, as a consultant, I was on the road all the time. I was drinking all the time. I was eating sandwiches at night to like fuel my brain so I could work late. And when I cut out all of those elements, all of the inflammation kind of just went away. And that was profound for me. It wasn't sustainable, right? And think, it's about making it sustainable. Go ahead. Was it a specific one? Like, was it gluten or lactose? Or you cannot really recall the specifics? Oh, no. I definitely recall the specifics. For like five years, I thought it was gluten. And it's actually mm. lactose. Oh, and wow. it's amazing to me because I started in paleo. I gave up all these things. And if you're looking for a book or like a super easy primer, Mark Hyman's Ultra Metabolism Diet is incredible. And it's, it's probably 150 pages, so it's very light. Half of it is case studies. And it's incredible because it will just teach you to learn what's right for you. Go ahead. Sorry, that was a mistake. Yeah, go ahead. Continue. <laughs> no, no worries. <laughs> um, so I think that like Mark Hyman's Ultra Metabolism Diet, is, it's the simplest, most easy to follow way to understand how you can A-B test with your own body. For me personally, I just kind of like plug and played into paleo. I was looking for recipes. I had no, no time to cook. I've never been somebody who cooks. I work a lot. I love to work. That's like my happy place. So over the years, I just kind of let go of gluten. And quite frankly, from 2011 to 2015, it became much easier to be gluten-free, right? In 2011, when you walk into a restaurant in the United States and you say, does this have gluten? People would look at you and be like, why do you care? In 2015, people have a separate gluten-free menu, right? It's a huge cultural change that happened around the world, but especially in the U.S. as well. Um, and then the irony is that one day I just kind of said, like, I just love bread. I'm just going to add it back. I just love bread and I love to eat. For me, I love to eat. Um, and I didn't have any negative impacts adding gluten back in my diet. Um, and not in a huge way, like meaning like I'm not like sitting at like the bread buffet every night and like killing myself with gluten, but I can have it selectively. I can have it in a really balanced way and it doesn't have a negative impact on my system. For me, lactose and dairy were actually much worse. And it's funny because 
my father had a terrible lactose allergy my whole life. And we actually didn't grow up eating a lot of lactose in my household. So we never had like heavy cream based anything. We ate like a very clean diet because of that. And my entire you know childhood, I kind of took it for granted. When I got to college, I was eating tons of pizza and like, you know, cafeteria food and things like that. And my health really did start to deteriorate. The way I saw it the most was on my face. I got terrible like cystic acne and then went on a series of um, like hormone treatments to kind of get rid of the cystic acne. And I was going to the dermatologist being like, is there anything else I can do? And they're like, no, no, no. You need to like take all these pills to control this. The second I cut dairy out of my diet, all the acne went away. And it's funny because I went to Johns Hopkins University, which is like a leading medical university around the world. And I would talk to my doctor friends about this and they'd be like, that's a coincidence. And I was like, how can you say that's a coincidence when it's literally like an A, B impact? So I kept dairy out of my diet um, and that's much harder than, than gluten, honestly. But when I found territory, because all the food we make is free of gluten, sugar, dairy, and inflammatory oils, my diet has just stayed a lot cleaner by default because I don't have to think about it. Um, so for me, it's always been about A-B testing. It's not about finding religion in food because these are not religions. This is your own body. It's just a template of the way that you can think about it. Keto, I got into really early because I wanted to lose weight. And a lot of people were losing weight on keto and it was already very much in line with what I was doing. And oh, I did keto, very, very strict keto, like no more than uh, 15 net carbs in a day, no more than 40 gross carbs in a day, which is like very restrictive keto. Um, I lost 35 pounds before my wedding. I looked great, everything like that, but it wasn't a sustainable lifestyle. And so like the world is about, and dieting and, and wellness is about finding the right balance for yourself. And I think that the amazing thing right now is we have like biomarkers and we have more information. We have continuous glucose monitors and all these things that like you can gather all that information, but it's really about figuring out what's going to give you a good life so that you can enjoy your wellness and not be fixated on it. Um, so that was a very long answer, but I, I have done them all is the answer. Yeah. I, I could say the same, to be honest, I've done all the diets out there. And I think it's, uh, it's what you mentioned. It's really based on the individual. Uh, mm -hmm. because for, from my, I've been a weightlifter for uh, a lot of years. And the moment that I start a keto diet, I really just lose all my strength. Mm -hmm. So for mm -hmm. me, it doesn't really work, but it, it helps me be much more focused. So it really depends on the outcome you want, but it's very, very um, individual based, which is a very interesting segue to territory and what you guys are doing at territory. So um, if we can go there, you just... You, you mentioned that you met, um, you, you actually learned about Territory on LinkedIn. What did yeah. you do after that? What did I what? I'm sorry. What did you do after that? Did you reach out to the founder or did you just apply? How, how did you apply? So I actually just reached out to the recruiter. Who, they had a position that was like not quite right posted. And I found the company. This is not an endorsement for LinkedIn, but LinkedIn is a really good discovery platform for companies. And I reached out and I had one conversation with the recruiter and she was doing very deep keto and I was doing very deep keto. And we had the conversation and she was like, holy shit, you're one of us. Because at that time, there were just not that many people talking about this. And honestly, in the world of women, there are no female biohackers outside of Gwyneth Paltrow. And her brand is so focused on beauty and lifestyle that I think most people don't even consider her a biohacker. But it's like, Part of the reason Whole30 was so popular is that Melissa Urban spoke to a whole group of women about natural eating in a way that nobody else was. And it's amazing to me because like, for me, I was always looking for those connection points. And I believe that hormonally, a woman's body is different than a man's body. And that when you're talking about keto, which plays very much into hormones, and you're talking about blood sugar, and you're talking about testosterone levels, it is different for women versus men. And was always looking for that information. So when I met, I met um, Hillary, who's the, the head of HR at that time. She was like, oh my gosh, we have to do this together. We have to talk to people about health and wellness. We have to talk to them about keto. We have to spread the word as women in health and wellness. Um, and then I met the founder, Patrick. And what I was stunned with Patrick is that he had built a business on his own personal use case and his community. And food is so community focused. And he was a paleo CrossFitter who was trying to get in shape and didn't want to cook for himself because he was a software engineer. That's our founding story. And I love it because he was a software engineer. So he never went and like got a kitchen and was like, I'm going to learn how to cook because that's not what he did. He built software because that's who he was. And that build of software versus kitchen has been the thing that has 
really enabled territory over the years because as paleo became primal and primal became whole 30 and whole 30 became keto and keto becomes all these other things territory just adds chefs because we are not a vertically integrated company we are a distributed supply network and what we bring to the table is commercialization on behalf of chefs but all of the R&D and the information about health and wellness trends that can lead meal and menu development into these trends. So there's this person who's looking for vegan keto food out there that wants less than, you know, 10 grams of protein and they want high fat and there's no solution for them because it's just really hard to eat that way. But with territory, what we're able to do is use a dynamic supply base to say, okay, we see a pocket of customers that are looking for vegan keto food in Los Angeles. What does our chef network look like there? Do we have somebody who makes really great vegan food? Do we have somebody who knows keto macros like it's the back of their hand? Do we have somebody who's just doing something interesting with like uh, shiraki or kelp noodles or something like that? We go out to the chefs and essentially they do the R&D. They do the, um, the cooking in their own kitchens and we bring the health and wellness standards. So when I saw this as a business model, I was like, this, mis- this business is uniquely positioned to do this. No one else can do it. If you're a vertically integrated manufacturing environment, you have 34 SKUs you can produce max. And anytime you get a new preference, you have to say, is the risk of changing the product out worth the reward? For a vegan keto person, it the pocket's not that big, right? Like the answer is the customer segment's not that big. This is why Kraft Macaroni and Cheese exists because it serves 80% of the population. And, and so it's like really interesting to me to say, how do you evolve the complexity of the supply chain? Kind of going back to the original... Um, the original like thesis that I had as a young person, how do you evolve the complexity of the supply chain and the production base to serve a customer that needs that complexity and how do you find them? Um, and so for me, I saw territory, but I saw the business model and I was like, this can do so much more than it's doing. And the founder had taken it, you know, through like beautiful stages of growth, like super deep in the community, so authentic, like built this beautiful software. Um, and when he transitioned out, like right as I was coming in, honestly, Um, It was like a perfect marriage between us because we had the same dream to impact people's health at scale through healthy food, impact economy positively through localized food, impact the world positively through sustainable materials, and utilize data to do so in a smart and efficient way. And it's been my privilege to be able to help him scale that vision um, pretty dramatically in the last four years. So it's been it's been incredible. That's a great story, Elis. We we are enjoying it so much. Can can you tell us more Thank about you. what's the um, how how are you guys thinking about achieving that vision? Are you thinking of always keeping in mind or taking the user's input when it comes to what do they want, or are you thinking of taking it in a way where we know what the users want from the data? It has to be both. Because food is intimate. You literally put it in your body. It's the most intimate thing and food is cultural. And I think that there is a cultural aspect of healthy eating that has been left out of the traditional narrative. And it's very hard for you to say to someone who grows up in a culture that has heavy on white rice and beans that those things are toxic to their body. That causes a cultural friction that keeps them out of health and wellness. And you see that in the United States, black and brown communities are left out of health and wellness. And we see Terrible rates of diabetes, heart disease, kidney failure, everything like that. It is a public health issue. So for me, it's about utilizing the data that you have, utilizing new markers like continuous glucose markers, uh, Apple Health Kit, Aura Rings, Pelotons, everything like that, because the world is more connected. And not using the data you have is foolish when you have it, is the answer. And coming up with something personalized, but it has to be beautiful and it has to be something that they love as well. And so for us, it's very much about how do we build in the data input pipes into our proprietary recommendation algorithm? And then how do we have a supply set of food that is broad and deep and delicious? Because if a customer sees something that is a healthy version of Ethiopian beans that they've been eating, and now they know from their data that it will help them achieve the goal that they're trying to reach, whether it's weight loss or blood sugar management, whatever it is, and we've made that dish capable of doing that, that is a forever relationship because it's already who they are. We're keeping them happy, but we're helping them with their health. So it's a marriage of both of those things. And what we're doing to make sure that that supply set exists, because coming up with limitless supply is not a small thing, right? We, on the other side of our our AI and our data science, 
we are dynamically looking at the ordering population and understanding what they need and what they want. Implicit preferences, explicit preferences, inputs of health and wellness data, and saying, how do we utilize this massive limitless supply model to make sure that we have the, like, for lack of a better term, inventory set that can support all these different types of preferences? Is there a way where, uh, are you thinking about it from a way where um, taking it as a, a very scientific, uh, in a very scientific approach from, let's say, from the athlete's perspective? So I understand you're mm -hmm. making it from a general perspective, targeting the general population. Mm -hmm. that's, that's, uh, that's spot on. But let's say for more athletic, more individuals who mm -hmm. are uh, focused on sports and uh, activities and in a sense where you would get a lot of data um, from their wearables, you would know the number of calories burned, you would know their heart rate, different metrics, and you would be able to advise them or to tailor their meal plans in order to achieve their goals. Uh, is this Absolutely. part of, of the vision? It absolutely is. And I think athletes are an incredible segment that are more inclined to take performance information and say like, because their body is their machine, their body is their business, right? They have to think about it that way. So for me, where I see this going is that we're taking information from wearables and, um, and their movement data. And then we're making recommendations in real time based on what we know is in their fridge and saying, if you've done a workout that you have burned 650 calories, and it was a high intensity workout, you need carbohydrates in your system, we want you to have sweet potatoes, we know that these three meals in your fridge that we already know are there, have the right level of carbohydrates, the right level of protein to help you recover. And then building that forward in like a push notification, then once they consume, then automatically uploading it into whatever fitness tracking that they're using. Because I think that it's that cyclical information flow. It's not just about the consumption of the food, but it's pumping the information back in so that then your wearables can track your blood sugar spike after you do consume that. That's how we can, that's how we complete the circle of connected nutrition, um, connected wellness. I think it's a huge opportunity because the hardest part of like, of tracking what you eat and connecting it to movement is the tracking part, right? It's the fact that like, I don't know if you've ever used like the best ones are like my fitness pal, or if you're dieting, it's Noom, or perhaps you're using like very clunky Apple health kit, which the nutrition input is literally terrible. It's a hard thing to do tracking because you're staring at a plate that you got. If you got it somewhere else, you're like, I think this has chicken in it and it maybe has like olive oil. I have no idea. Or you're cooking for yourself and you're making very plain things. And so for us, we maintain um, the deepest amount of information in the industry on micro and macronutrients on every single meal. Our food is clean down to the bottom level. We make our own barbecue sauce. We don't even buy other barbecue sauce. And What's incredible to me is that what we can do with that information is we can build integration to make the whole wellness process easier and use sleep data, movement data, and food data together to get optimal results. Um, so that's where all of this goes, especially for athletes, because they need that information. And in V1, they have personal chefs. That's what personal chef does for them, right? They like very wealthy athletes have a personal chef that is in their home that keeps their fridge full of healthy food and they know what to eat when. And what we're doing is democratizing the access to that across different customer segments and saying, you don't need a personal chef that is going to sit in your house and know exactly your diet. We can use the data that we have on you. We can use our supply network and we can get you what you need. In the, it's in the initial conversation we had uh, when we discussed how Territory could potentially use Terra to access the data, mm -hmm. it's exactly the vision we had at the beginning. It's like, you just have so much information coming from wearables, mm -hmm. but all of that information just stays and it remains sitting in silos. So I'm measuring with my Garmin device and I'm measuring with my, my fitness pal, but mm -hmm. then I just need so much education to do something with it, right? right? And just so many people don't have that. I spent five mm -hmm. years to understand from myself and there is just so many people that they don't have that. And... I think this is really powerful because it's not only that you are not you you are taking the education part outside of the equation. You are mm -hmm. also delivering the meals, and hence it's it's an easy solution for everybody to to just um, have the meals and stay healthy based on their data. So it's like this is really powerful, and it's like it's one of those things that you think it needs to exist in the future, but it's already here. It's already here. And it's interesting to me, some people ask us, like, does the food mechanism matter? 
Like what, just use the technology, just create the technology. And the answer is the food mechanism is the hardest part. Like the, because the information is already there. There's a lot of very smart people thinking about how you string it together. And, and what you all have done is incredible because what you're doing is saying you're creating data that is usable for third parties, right? Because the data lives, but the build is an uphill battle that is hard. But for me, the food mechanism and the transparency and the integration is the most important part because you have to create that cycle for the customer where it's easy. I think that to your point, this category has a long way to go. But I think that the improvements and the innovation in the last two years have acted as a rapid accelerator in connected wellness. And it's one that I'm so excited to be at the forefront of because I really believe that it's connected wellness, it's personalization, it's disease management. I think what WHOOP has done during COVID has been phenomenally interesting in looking at resting heart rate and looking at um, oxygen and looking at how can you look and see the biomarkers of COVID before COVID appears right? And what they're doing is they're using predictive, now they're using predictive analytics to say like, this is what COVID looks like before you test positive, right? That's incredible. That's amazing use of consumer technology made for athletes now impacting public health. Nutrition is so hard to integrate because it's uncontrolled, right? It's thousands of variants. It's so many different endpoints. And what we're doing is we're keeping that control on that endpoint and building native integration so that you can build that into the cycle of wellness and, and, we're excited to be at the forefront of it because I think this is where the whole category goes. One of the examples I heard the other day um, was that a user was using an aura ring and the, her heart rate changed, the heart rate pattern changed and also the temperature changed. Mm -hmm. And then she, uh, after a couple of weeks, she had a pregnancy test and mm -hmm. realized that she was pregnant And the ordering could actually say from before that, you know what, there is some change here. Hence, yep. you, would, um, you, you could see and you could predict that something was happening. And probably uh, Aura could predict uh, the pregnancy. But having said that, which ones of the, maybe the wearables or the, um, uh, the Peloton-like solutions, which ones do you think are important in this space? So I have to say before we go into that, when I got pregnant, I noticed that my um, my resting heart rate went from 56 to 72. In wow. A, uh huh. In a flat stress environment, so like normal stressors, normal fitness, normal sleep, everything like that. And I remember being like, "What could possibly be causing this in my life?" And when you get pregnant early, your body starts to pump more blood, and it just starts to circulate more. It's like one of the very very initial things. And my temperature rose. I was measuring that on like a gen one Fitbit. So it's, it's amazing to me because like the science is much more like whoop is very advanced. Like Apple health kit is built or Apple is building tons of hardware. But when it comes down to your body, you can just look at some kind of like standard biomarkers and make predictions. Um, so I love that. Aura ring, kudos to them. They should do pregnancy tracking because for the uh, millennial generation, there's a massive fertility crisis happening. People are not, you know, having babies as often or having them later. Um, which I'm sure you all know about. Um, in terms of who I think is leading in the space and who I think is doing interesting things, I think Aura is doing very interesting things. I'm a massive fan of Whoop because I think that what they have done is they have hardware, but they're actually doing the analytics. What I see, um, not to speak ill of Apple because I think they're incredible, Apple builds beautiful hardware, but on the analytics and user interface side, I have been tremendously disappointed um, in terms of what you can actually do. I think in the fitness side of the house, I love Peloton so, so very much because I'm a user and I think it's the best quality group fitness in the home. Um, but I don't think that they're using the data in a particularly intelligent way. I think that if you look at somebody like Tonal, they are very interesting, especially when you're talking to that athlete population, because they're using information real time on your exertion to dynamically change the weight that you are lifting. So what they're doing is they're getting double utilization of the up and down motion, which is very, very different. It can only be done with magnetic weights and can only be done with heavy data analytics. So I think total leads in this space from a fitness perspective because it is that dynamic change. Um, and I think that, you know, when we look across, like, how do you actually get the best workout? I think the best workout is probably coming from a tonal. Um, it's how you define best quite frankly, because sometimes I just like to pop on and do a ride is the answer. I'm not looking for like the best. I think in terms of the, um, 
like consumer, like continuous glucose monitors, blood testing, things like that. I think Vessel Health is doing some really interesting things. I think that uh, Zoe Health, who did a massive gut biome study um, in the UK over the last you know five years and is now starting to pull that information to say, how do we change gut health to impact people's health at scale? I think that when you have data scientists running businesses like this, you're going to have incredible results. Um, I could, like that's the most amazing thing for me as an entrepreneur is to be working with data scientists that are saying it's more than just data science. It's how do we make it for the consumer? How do we make it usable? How do we make it a brand? Um, because that's where as somebody who's been passionate, that's where I've been missing it. So I think that you have to look at your lifestyle. I wear an Apple watch, not because it's the best, but because I need like text message on it, quite frankly. And so you look at your lifestyle and you figure out what you want. But um, the answer is there's so many great companies out there now that you should just test and learn similar to how you have your diet, test and learn what analytics you really need. I, I use sleep mostly auto sleep. I don't know the people who wrote auto sleep, the app. It's a phenomenal app. It's great for tracking just recovery. So lots of good ones out there. Elise, you mentioned you mentioned uh, in one of your points something very interesting. The so whoop getting having the hardware and complementing it with the software. We we have mm -hmm. seen a huge number of of companies now focusing on on uh, software in in the mm -hmm. sense where so you have you have having the ability to get this wearables in a way the the data from the wearables in a way which is easy to access is giving them the ability to focus on very specific things so they would have specific metrics that they focus on they build the mm -hmm. software for it and this could be used by businesses in the space where they don't need to build the software again for that specific mm -hmm. uh metric let's say the if you look at whoop taking using the hardware data using the data from their hardware complimenting with the software, showing you something nice. It's great on Whoop side and they are doing an amazing job. But now we are seeing more and more companies focusing on that and delivering something much higher in terms of user experience and uh, mm -hmm. the users of that data. Yeah, I think it's about it's about the user experience. And I, I, one of the things I love that you said is about specificity, right? Because like how the consumer looks at data is very specific to what they are trying to achieve right? I'm someone who works a lot. So I watch sleep a lot. I want to know how deep I'm sleeping because I want to make sure that I'm getting good deep sleep, even if I'm not sleeping a lot of hours. And so it's interesting because the user interface for Apple health may work for a lot of people on sleep that just tells you how long you were in bed. It doesn't work for me. I need auto sleep because it's more advanced, right? So I think that there are companies coming up that are doing beautiful UX experiences. And, and I think like it's all about understanding who the population is. And for me, where I actually think health and wellness is going as a category is less broad-based and much more specific. Meaning if you are a woman who's 35 trying to get pregnant, you don't want a general health and wellness tracker. You want a fertility tracker that uses all the integration together, nutrition, heart rate, sleep, everything together, because that's what you're trying to solve. If you're an athlete, who wants to amplify their performance, you need something that focuses on recovery, right? And so I think that, you know, in the world of consumer, we're in this beautiful time where there's so many options. And like, I live in direct consumer food and trust me, there are so many options. Like you get inundated. Now that we've been on the phone, you will get inundated with thousands of ads from my, myself and my competitors. You're welcome. So it's a very, very high complexity moment for the consumer because they're getting hit with so many things that they don't know what to do. And what that means is they're going to experts and they're looking for the experts across health and wellness, those leading voices. So uh, Mark Hyman or Will Cole or Frank Lipman, they're on the health and wellness side, or they're looking for their specific thing that they are trying to do. We see a, um, a rise in uh, diabetes apps for Gen Z in the US. I don't know if you guys are seeing that in the UK, but very, very interesting. We see a rise in digital pharmacies that are prescribing uh, metformin and GLP-1. So Found is a great one. Um, that's the, uh, the form, one of the former founders of Bumble's there. Um, Google Ventures backed, really interesting. Calibrate is another one. Um, and one of the founders of Capsule founded that company. And saying like, this is for a population that is looking for weight loss and we're giving an integrated telehealth experience with GLP-1 prescription and we are going to help them lose weight, right? Because the consumer, they're tired. Two years into a pandemic, the world is falling apart. They needed, they, the consumer always wanted the easy button. They really want it now. Um, and with so many choices, they get confused. 
So for me, if I was like making a prediction of where this goes, is it goes into hyper-specific consumer brands that have the full suite of integration, but what they focus on and how the user experience is built is built for that customer so it feels intimate to them. And for me, as we think about food, this is why I love our solution more than anything. Because we have a broad base, because we're going to pull in a lot of different types of information, we'll be able to build connected nutrition recommendations for those different populations in their own environment without making them do the heavy lifting of saying like, okay, how does fitness work in? And how does like my movement work into this? Um, so that's my prediction for the space. Competition means better products for everybody, but it also means a lot of customer confusion. Yeah. One of the the products I really, really love uh, is is the one we, we had a conversation last uh, last time with Mateo from mm -hmm. 8sleep. Uh, yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. What these guys are doing is fantastic because I was actually using an 8sleep for the last month. Mm -hmm. And uh, it actually measures how many times um, you do tosses and turns. Mm -hmm. And I went from 30 to 35 on average. I was actually checking my phone now and it's 10. So literally from, uh, from 30, I went back to 10 because of the regulation of the temperature. So mm -hmm. it's, it's back to the theme, measure data and mm -hmm. then make something with them that is actionable for, uh, for the users. And this, this way you do it and the users are, are so passive in the same way that you do it, which is you are measuring the data and you are giving me the meals, then it's, it's just so simple. It becomes so, mm -hmm. so simple. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, having said that, uh, we noticed that you actually did some uh, fundraising in the past. You did some fundraising for Territory mm -hmm. during, um, during the COVID uh, period. So how did you approach it? So for us during the COVID period, our focus was on keeping people healthy and at home. It was like a very singular focus during COVID. We said, how do we keep people healthy at home? And health is a couple of different levels for us because we are a network of partners in restaurants, caterers, chefs. So the aspect of health that we were looking for was not necessarily just the end consumer health, but it was also about how do we support our local restaurant and caterer community to make sure that those businesses don't get out of business when there's no one outside. So it was a crazy time because we were very focused on, like, we also have a huge proportion of customers who are autoimmune uh, compromised. And we would just get constant reach out from them. Like, territory is literally keeping me alive right now. There's no better sense of purpose than a customer who says, I cannot leave my home. There's a pandemic. I don't know if I'm going to die by leaving my home. Please help me stay safe. Right. And, and we had the capability to do it. So what we did was we dramatically increased our reach. We reached, uh, we went from reaching, I think, you know, 20 million Americans. Now we're at 250 million Americans across the country. So massive amount of scale in the last few years. Um, we really, really boosted the amount of different types of food that we had so that we could keep people eating. We saw a 60% increase in the amount of territory that customers ate during the pandemic, which is huge. And when we surveyed them and we're doing product market fit and things like that, it's because we had more choices, more options. We were feeding their family at different times. We rolled out family sizes so that you could still put out a family meal for your family, even if you weren't cooking. Um, and what's amazing to me is like in the post-pandemic world, pandemic, still in a pandemic, um, what we found is now we have a permanent relationship with those customers. And so what we saw across the landscape was that a lot of direct-to-consumer food companies went on like a spending spree to just bring anybody through their doors during the pandemic. And what those companies did is they popped up and they popped down. And now you're going to see a whole lot of them go out of business because they built businesses on pandemic behavior. For territory, we did not do this. We built bigger relationships with our existing customer segments. We went to the health population and we said, we are improving. We're reaching you in a different way. And we're talking to you as a 45-year-old parent who is working from home and has to think about feeding your family. We're talking to you as somebody who used to go to the gym five days a week and that gym's closed and you're you're having a hard time with that, right? We talk to those segments in a different way, but still to our core segments. And so um, we had really great sustainable growth. We, I mean, we had dramatic growth in 2020, as you can probably imagine. Um, went out to the fundraising world and kind of said, this is the new world of food and here we are. And what's exciting to me is that, you know, we raised our last money in 2020 and it's 2022 now. So it's like the whole world has changed <laughs> since then. But as we look at the, at the next phase of what we do, we brought investors around the table who really understood advanced connected nutrition and the value of our platform at scale outside of just the D2C 
you know, kind of the one consumer business that we had been. Um, so one of our lead investors who came in in our last round, literally incredible. He was on the board of Trunk Club, which was a data-backed recommendation algorithm for men's fashion, right? Highly complex category, lots of competitors, but that data science behind that makes that custom recommendation to build something you love. He was also on the board of Hotel Tonight. Hotel Tonight is an incredible app, but basically decommoditizes hotel rooms, which are basically a commodity at this point. And it creates surprise and delight and says, based on your profile, we think you're going to love this. And so when I was looking for somebody to come in and lead our round, I really wanted somebody who wasn't afraid of a consumer category because there's a lot of software investors that are just terrified by the fact that there's an end product. And they're like, why didn't, why don't you just build the SaaS? And it's like, because the world needs things to consume. Um, but I was looking for someone who brought that data experience to the table for the next round of what we do to think of how we structure the team, how we structure the technology, how do we build the right amount? How do, who are we building for? And as we have progressed through the last two years, we're really, I mean, at this amazing moment, we're crossing the precipice of doing this for our customers at scale, doing it through large scaled partnerships, through a headless e-commerce environment, and also integrating information in a completely unique way that nobody else in the food category is doing. And so our series B that we raised in 2020, it was absolutely a foundation of the world has changed and direct to consumer food as a category is growing dramatically, huge caker. But let's get ahead of the next set of consumer trends. Let's not be happy with where we are. Let's innovate so that we change the category as a whole for the next 10 to 15 years. Um, so very exciting. And um, it feels like it was a really long time ago and also very recently. But, um, you know, it was just like an incredible experience. So mo money is one part of the equation, but I'm sure you have to deal with a lot of problems in the running a business. Tell us more about the challenges. What what kind of challenges are you are you trying to solve now? Uh, yes, I mean you all know being an entrepreneur is like it's the best and the hardest thing you could ever do. I once said in an interview that like territory is my like heartbeat because it's the thing I think about every day, all day, um, which is hard. But what I think it's amazing, but it's hard. The challenges of being a team like ours is that we are both a data science company, a SaaS platform, and a food operation that runs every single week. And if you think about it, like that's a highly complex organization. And even just from like a workforce management, we have people who are, we have people who don't have college educations who are packing boxes and doing like routings of trucks. And we have PhDs from Duke in data science. Like those are very, very broad sets of human sphere. And so for me, I love that diversity around the table and I love the power. And it's so funny because like the aforementioned data scientist, like loves talking to the people who pack the boxes and drive the trucks because he's like, we can do this differently. We can use AI here, right? Like it creates this like really innovative environment. And the hardest thing is keeping the focus and keeping everyone saying like, okay, what are we building? What's our mission? How do we do it? The world has not been easy for the last two years in, in physical things. Deliveries have been hard. There's a rising cost of labor on logistics and food production. Very hard for our chefs. We have a whole team that just manages chef relationships and working with them as their business has dramatically changed. I think managing the pandemic environment from a how the world's infrastructure works from supply chain operation and labor perspective, plus the consumer change has been the biggest challenge that we've had. And I am so lucky to have the smartest people around the table with me to think about how do we solve these things in the right way? How do we build where we need to build? How do we invest where we need to invest? And we have never as a company been like, uh, you know, psychotically focused on like some, something that isn't real. We're like a very reality based company, meaning like there's a thing we do every single week. We keep people healthy. We, we talk to customers. And I think that that reality check and that, every week heartbeat of the business that runs and, and, you know, produces revenue and, and people eat the food. It's like a real thing that happens really helps us with that focus. Um, because otherwise you could just, you can just build and build and build and build. And then you're like, who are you building for? It's like important to stay really, really focused. So that's been hard, but it's also been fun. And also just like managing a team of, you know, 60 people during a global pandemic and now world war three, it's not an easy thing. <laughs> It's not an easy thing. And I don't take it lightly because it's very much like life is short and you have to be passionate about what you're doing and you have to believe in what you're doing. And I always say to our team, like, 
I want territory to be the best place that you've ever worked, but it may not be the place that you are forever. And that's fine. Let's make sure that you have a good career, a good life, that you love what you're doing, that you love the people you do it with. And that this is a moment in time that you look back on and you say, my time was worth it because time is the only thing you cannot get more of. That's it. Exactly. You only have a fixed amount. And I think it's uh, this, what you're saying is resonating a lot now with people who are looking to join um, companies with with a great mission and aligning with uh, with the values and principles of the individual. So I I hear a lot of friends leaving from uh, consulting and banking and going to uh, companies with great uh, vision and mission. Tell us more about how how does it work in 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 territory food in terms of the culture of the company. Yeah, I mean you nailed it. Mission driven company first and foremost. So basically for us we are in the business of keeping people healthy at scale. Healthy communities, healthy partners, healthy individuals. Um, every single person around the table believes in that in some different way. And so for me, when we bring anybody new on, we are always looking for that alignment of cultural values with a strong emphasis on differentiated points of view, differentiated backgrounds to help us build that. Because my idea of health of a community is different than your idea of health of the community. You have different experiences than I do, so on and so forth. We're a very diversity-focused organization. We are a flat organization. Um which means every single week, twice a week, the entire company gets on a stand-up together and we all just have a little chat. We are a, um, we're a completely remote company, which is amazing because it means that we have teams not just in the U.S., but internationally now as well that are part of territory and that are part of our culture. And keeping a heartbeat of transparency, keeping people healthy, focus on the mission, and building innovation, like an innovative business that is doing this something different, right? That's how we keep it alive. Um, the other thing is like, I personally spend a lot of time and our executive team spends a lot of time on building digital connectivity. Remote businesses are hard. They're really hard because you don't have that moment of today was hard. Let's go get a drink after work. Or, um, we walked out of like a great meeting and I have a ton of energy and let's continue to riff on it. Right. Once the digital meeting ends, it's over. And so you have to be really practiced about how you build a business and like, our Slack channels are chaotic because we've been a remote company forever, but it's about building those micro connections between people so that they are sharing that they, that they have a partner who is a orthopedist and that they have a dog that they're obsessed with, or that they love Bravo TV. And those things have nothing to do with the work of the work of the work of territory, but they're the micro connections of human nature that build good teams. And in a digital and virtual environment, you have to have the infrastructure for that. And as the leader of the company, I really believe it comes down from the top and that it's a lot for me, but I try to know everyone. I know everyone in our company. I have a personal relationship with them. I want to know them because I want them to feel like they're not just part of a digital environment, but they're a part of something whole. And I bring that to my whole executive team as well. And it's a different set of leadership skills than you needed 10 years ago. It's a different set of leadership skills now enabled by technology. We have Slack. We use a great product called Donut, which I highly, highly recommend if you don't have it, but it's like incidental meetings across the organization. Um, we use we have a performance management cycle that is transparent, 360, very, very easy to use because a lot of people in startups are kind of like, where does it go? Like, how do I get promoted? When is the next money coming? Like those kind of simple questions just relieve your employees' mind of the friction of work as much as you can. Um, and it's amazing to me because there's also just like little things like we have this this thing called taco. This is very stupid, but it's fun. It's just little kudos that you give each other that have these little tacos to do it. And sometimes we're doing them for prizes, likely not. But it's all about just like creating a culture of amplifying the wins and amplifying the community so that you're creating that constant voice and heartbeat of your company where even though I may never meet, I've actually not physically met over half of the company as the CEO, but we are all still a family. We are all building something together and we're in it as one. That's critical in this environment and it keeps people engaged. It keeps them focused on the mission. How would you know that uh, a person that you're hiring is, mm -hmm. ha has a cultural criteria that you set down? Is, is there a, a certain how-to you have uh, which we, we can learn from? Yeah, so we actually have um, seven core principles of territory, and I won't go through all of them, but we basically, for any hire that we make, we are looking for people who have um, an innovative mind, 
collective responsibility, bringing diversity to the table, um, respectful communication. We kind of just like say there's there's seven things that we're looking for that we know are going to be just the cultural pillars of, of who we are. And and for us, because we are closely remote is what we call it, we need people that love that and embody that. And listen, it's not for everyone. We have people who come in and they're like, I cannot handle remote environment, or I don't like the fact that I need to be communicating through Slack, you know, throughout the day. And that's not for everyone. That's okay. <laughs> you know, like not every business is for everyone. So my biggest piece of advice to anybody who's starting a company, especially a remote company is first and foremost, first and foremost, you're starting a company and don't pretend you're not. Um, I love this for like entrepreneurs. I mentor a lot of companies. What does starting a company mean? You need to have benefits. You need to have healthcare. You need to have a 401k, which is like an investing vehicle in the United States. You need to have the infrastructure of a company because if you are two single shingle people who are like, well, I'm just going to use my wife's healthcare and I'm going to like think about saving in a different way. You won't access the best talent because not everyone will operate that way. So create the infrastructure of a company so that you're able to scale your people quickly. If you do it early, it will pay dividends for you. The second thing I would say is line your mission and your vision early and like, be honest, if that's really what you're doing, write it down, have those things documented so that you can always pull back to them and be able to reference them. And if you are doing work that is outside of that mission and vision, you should think about stopping because like everything you do should be connected to that mission and vision. The third thing I would say is build those brand values, whether it's three, five, seven, build the company values of what it means to be part of Terra and use them when you're talking to hires. And if you like someone that is outside of those brand value or those company values, do you need to flex the values? Maybe the values aren't totally encompassing. If you don't like someone in them, why, right? Use it as a really great filter to say, I am scaling up my team. Scaling your team is like the hardest thing you're going to do, right? Going from five people to 10 people to 40 people to 60, just talking to an entrepreneur that went from uh, 20 to 300 in the last year and a half. And it's a huge amount of growth. Very similar to me. He's like, I got to know everybody. I have to make sure that they fit into the the company values, but not any sort of template. Like I want to have diversity around the table. And it's like, if you start with that kind of really planful mindset around mission, vision, company values, and actually creating a real business from the beginning, you will have just so much success. And I think that a lot of entrepreneurs, they get thrown into the fire and then they're like, I don't have a healthcare plan. How do I hire the next 10 people? And that creates all this chaos that you didn't need. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. It's, it's one of the conversations I always have with Ralph as well, uh, which is all about the company culture and how do you convey this um, to all the employees. And it's always about, uh, first of all, embody the, uh, the culture as a founding team before mm -hmm. you do it uh, with anybody else. That's right. Um, having said that, um, and to wrap this up, uh, since um, I'm, I'm aware of your time, can you give us your thoughts about the, the future of this space? Of the space? Yes. My thoughts. I think we become more digitized as a community, but I think that we become more personal, meaning humans want human connection. They want information, but they need support to do what they need to do. And I think that from a connected wellness perspective, I do think we'll see bigger integration. I'm excited to be at the forefront of it. Anybody who is listening to, to this or any other conversation, I want to bring you connected nutrition for whatever you're doing because it's the missing link and I can help you do it easily at scale, which is exciting. I think that it's about reaching the consumer in a really intimate way. I think we're going to see a growing amount of very specific companies that are focused on specific consumer needs or consumer segments. And I think that's the right thing. Because when you're a broad-based company, you're trying to reach everyone, you're talking to no one. And when you're talking to no one, you're spending a lot of money on ads, you're spending a lot of money to just like get your name out there. So it's about going deep into community. In the world of data science and integration, I think we're going to see really exciting things in predictive algorithms. I think we're going to see very interesting things come up in AI. And my hope for the space is that we build it in a way that is consumer first, because there's a lot of interesting tech to be built but you have to make it consumer friendly and you have to make it exciting. Um, and so I think that we're going to see broad based integration of um, biomarkers. So fecal blood, continuous glucose monitors, plus fitness, 
plus recovery, plus sleep. I think there's going to be massive integration. I think you guys are going to be at the center of a lot of it, which I think is very exciting for all of us around the table. Um, and this is where it all goes. We're finally at the point where the hardware, the software, and the consumer need is there. And it's on us as a community of connected wellness professionals to build it and get it to the consumer. So that's where I think it all goes. Elis, it has been fantastic having you in the podcast. I think, uh, as we all know, Territory Food is a great company and uh, you clearly show that you're a, a wonderful uh, leader in the organization. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful to chat with you all. Um, I think we're going to build something beautiful together. So thanks so much for having me.